0: Network's Wagering Week. Help your bottom line.
1: Welcome to Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And these are interesting times. Is it a Chinese proverb? Uh, May you live in interesting times, which is kind of a mixed Yeah, it's sort of a, a
0: cruel thing to, to suggest uh,
1: yeah, to someone. Just a couple of days ago, of course, national emergency declared by President Trump in connection with coronavirus. So we want to be timely. So uh, Connor and I are going to talk about coronavirus. Is it hazardous to your legal health would be one angle that some folks might be interested in. It's not the paramount issue, but but we're going to get into that. We're also going to get into whether the president has weaponized lawsuits because... uh, he seems to be suing everybody he doesn't like—the Washington yep. Post and CNN and so on—and uh, some folks have questions as to whether that's really the right way to go. I have answers. Well, nah. we're going to get to your answers, <laughs> uh, but before we even get to whether uh, the coronavirus is hazardous to your legal health, I wanted to kind of kind of personalize things a little bit because uh, Connor, you and I've been doing this show uh, seven or eight episodes now, and before that, we did do couple of years, and so uh, I know some have followed the podcast earlier and now this one, but just to refresh people's memory, maybe we can just take a a quick little minute to kind of reintroduce ourselves. I'm uh, a legal analyst. Uh, I've been doing this for over 30 years, a practicing lawyer, but uh, I've been affiliated with ABC News, uh, Channel 4, KNBC here in Los Angeles. Followed everything from O.J. Simpson, Rodney King, Robert Blake, uh, Phil Spector, uh, Michael Jackson, right right to the present, and so this podcast, Too Many Lawyers, to me, is a wonderful opportunity uh, for Connor and for me to kind of lay out uh, what the big legal issues are, and uh, and we hope uh, we hope you're enjoying it. Uh, uh, Connor, uh, go ahead and uh, reintroduce yourself to folks.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know that I would be able to uh, call myself a, a legal analyst, uh, even at this point, a couple of years I into think you podcasting I think you and broadcasting you, about the law. But I am also uh, a practicing uh, attorney, a trial attorney, um, here in Southern California as well. And so, you know, we both got that perspective, but we have very different perspectives on that. I mean, you've got years and years of, of these gigantic, you know, lawsuits that go on and on and on and on, whereas my practice is much smaller and higher volume. Well, and Um, and also, you make a really
1: good point. I think what we're trying to do with too many lawyers is to present two different generations, Mm -hmm. uh, two different philosophies, since I'm a libertarian, you're progressive, Mm -hmm. and... To, to show that you can come to common ground in a civil
0: way in this age of polarization.
1: That's really what we're trying to get at, and, and hopefully we're yeah, accomplishing I mean, the goal.
0: I, I would say that it's not it's not just because we're father and son uh, that we can actually talk to each other. In fact, it's, it's often you know, families that have the most... Uh, strife and contention over politics. It's why you don't talk about politics over the Thanksgiving uh, dinner table or wherever else, because, you know, you don't pick your family, and they might be very different than you, whereas you, you or do... as I say, th- you can't pick you your family, can't. like there you are. can pick anyway. your friends. You pick your friends, and generally, people surround themselves with, with people like-minded folks, but it can be really hard to navigate family uh, interactions, uh, workplace interactions with people who are... Really fundamentally different and think differently and and being able to figure out the way to approach those conversations without causing strife and ruining your day and everybody else's day. That's such an important, crucial skill that so few people have that I think that's the most valuable value proposition we offer is being able to make those conversations easier and more productive. I agree. And and while we're
1: being kind of personal about this, I'd like to morph into the coronavirus discussion kind of in a personal way because, I mean, this pandemic label is huge. It, it yeah. shows we live in serious times. And it's actually reminded me of some other momentous times in recent history. And one I want to, to remind you of, uh, and that is 9-11. Mm-hmm. I have a very vivid memory of 9-11. Uh, September 11, 2001, you were I, I figured it out sixth exactly grade. four days past your birthday uh-huh. in sixth grade, and you and I were in the entry hall of our home, yeah. and you said something that really hit me between the eyes. You, a sixth grader, said, so we're at war, and I thought, my gosh, this kid is is very serious, you know it wasn't some childish uh, you know, frightened, weird thing, you were just saying it in a very serious way. And it actually has made me think of a personal experience I had. Coincidentally, again, I figured it out. Uh, I was three days past my birthday in the sixth grade on November 22, 1963. And I was sitting there in sixth grade, and all of a sudden the PA comes on in the classroom. The principal had put the radio next to his microphone, and we were listening to the reports on the radio of the assassination of JFK. And I remember my little pals and I, were kind of a little lost and didn't have anything like the perspective that you seemed to have when you were in sixth grade. And I remember thinking over, uh, you know, at nine eleven and later, you had a better grasp when you got the big news in sixth grade than my little pals and I did. So now we have a pandemic. And I guess I'm wondering if you think, are kids being forced to grow up faster, become mature earlier? Because... I mean America's gone through a whole lot in the last century with yeah. the depression, World War II, and the Cold War and bomb shelters. But it seems like I don't know maybe childhood is being cut short or at least changed I'm wondering what you think.
0: It's hard to know you've got more perspective on it than I, but from where I stand i don't think I think childhood is being cut short maybe in other ways um in our you know interaction with uh with technology and uh, our, our educational system that sort of puts you to work, um, even in the educational process, before you even get out there and get a job. Uh, but from my perspective, I think the Cold War had to have cut childhood shorter uh, than Well, there the was a lot Iraq. of fear, I can tell you, Absolutely. you know, being 7,
1: 8, 9, 10, 11, when yeah. they were talking about bomb shelters and the Cuban Missile Crisis and so on. But you know, a lot of things happen in a, in a child's life where there's fear. You know, maybe you've family's splitting up or they're moving or, or, you know,
0: some sort of trauma with friends. Yeah. So
1: that's always,
0: always going to happen. I just feel like Americans are more insulated now uh, from the effects of uh, war um, and really the, the effects of, of, of uh of big, you know, momentous world events, most of the time more insulated than they were uh, in the, the last, in the 1900s. I mean, we, we haven't had the draft in an awful long time. Right. We haven't had, uh, you know, rationing. We haven't had, uh, you know, really to feel the bite of of what a war can do um, to a country Uh, We haven't had a a war fought on American soil. um, Well, I think, you know, the thing that's really changed is the screens. I mean, nowadays, whether
1: kids are 2 or 6 or 12 or 15, the big deal change is that the screen is basically their life. And it used to be we didn't have screens, and then they barely, you know, uh, you barely heard about them, and then they were a big deal. So I don't know. I'm no uh, sociologist or psychologist, but i got to assume that that has made
0: uh, a big difference and has caused large changes. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's for the better or not. It's possible. It's possible that, uh, you know, the innovations in the technology of learning and teaching have improved such that sixth grade Connor had a better grasp of of the world and how it worked than um, sixth grade Royal did. Well, you know, when you talk about a, a
1: better gr- uh, grasp on the world, and now I'm going to give my you know, old guy speech— but, it has struck me that growing up in the '50s and '60s, and basically being a television addict, to yeah. me, I was exposed to American and world history, and culture, and show business, and philosophy, and economics because I had a window on the last several decades watching all this, you know, dopey stuff on television. <laughs> and it strikes me that whereas nowadays kids are uh, are probably a lot smarter and are, are, are more incisive in terms of analyzing things. The, the thinking is more rigorous. I think maybe they've lost something in that because you didn't have that you know black and white window on the last three or four decades. Instead, you've had your eye on a screen involving very current, very topical stuff. You're better at analyzing what's going on around you, but maybe don't have the perspective of the last few decades. I don't know if you think
0: that mm. I'm all wet on that no, or if you think there's anything to an it. It's an interesting thought that that uh, slowing down the the process of information gathering and learning and focusing it on the last couple of decades might kind of close a generation gap between you and the people who are a little older than you. And so now maybe we see a generation gap that is wider, a gulf that is wider because... Maybe the youth live more in the moment, and in the last five years, and in their lived experience, than they do in their parents' last couple of decades, which is a, it's certainly an interesting thought. I can I can I can imagine that. I, I really didn't get uh, a lot uh, of you know history of the seventies and eighties and and nineties until I was in college and until. I was, you know, studying political science and political philosophy in college. Did I really? And
1: thank God those Marxist professors were there to, to really set
0: everybody. You know, I never straight. actually had a Marxist professor. Oh, so that's I had a cli- a bunch, That's just a cliche. Right? I mean, I had I had liberal professors. Certainly, I, I had a, a trans professor before anybody knew what trans you know was. I had, I had people who would get up there and say like, pretty liberal things. I had pretty a bunch of neoliberal Keynesian or Keynesian type professors as well who were very, you know, like my econ classes and political science and econ had some overlap, and a lot of them were, you know, invisible hand, this and that, and it'll all, you know, solve all problems.
1: Well, when we come back, we're going to stop talking about ourselves and start talking about uh, y'all and uh, the coronavirus situation in terms of the law, the declaration of emergency, and so on. And by the way, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Too Many Lawyers, uh, whether you go to Apple or Revolver Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. So uh, we're going to pause and be all right. Hey, America, Christopher Hahn here, the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. What is with the president and the right-wing echo chamber encouraging these astroturf protests against stay-at-home orders around the country? It's ridiculous, and it needs to stop. Check out the Aggressive Progressive Podcast wherever you download podcasts. Back with two many lawyers, Royal Oaks and...
0: Connor Oaks. I
1: forgot your name for a
0: second. Yeah, no,
1: I didn't. I just like you to introduce yourself. Appreciate um, it. So we're talking about coronavirus, uh, specifically legal angles. Uh, so Trump's declaration of emergency, what does it really mean? Well, the background is Congress has actually passed uh, over 100 laws allowing the president to declare an emergency. And usually it's stuff like hurricanes and floods, but it can be public health stuff as well. And really, the significance of a declaration of war is that it allows the president to do things without following the usual legal standards and constraints and so on.
0: An emergency, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can give money, additional federal money to state governments, local governments. Um, you get various laws that are that are in play. There's this thing that folks have probably heard about uh, called the Stafford Act. And the Stafford Act frees up federal resources and money to help, again, state and local efforts to save lives and protect public health and safety and so on. It's really the main tool for the government to respond to major disasters and emergencies. And it's actually, uh, I was looking it up, it taps into over $40 billion to buy medical supplies and equipment. Uh, it lets the federal uh, government uh, direct its uh, personnel and facilities and so on to distribute medicine, and food and usually it 's regarding natural disasters, uh, as I say, but uh, Clinton used it on the West Nile virus uh, near the end of his time in the White House, uh, and President Obama also uh, used it against the swine flu but obviously, this is a much, much bigger deal so we 've got uh, federal options in terms of uh, the Stafford Act and other other statutes. Um, interestingly, Connor, the court system is starting to be affected. I'm I'm seeing delays uh, on a court by court basis. Uh, I mean, you've got criminal defendants that have a constitutional right to yeah. That's a that's a trial. huge
0: that's a huge problem. I I also am seeing the same thing um, as we see every large gathering of people be disbanded and and cancelled. Um, at the same time, you have to think about jury assembly rooms. You're going to bring several hundred people who are legally required to be there. You know, that's going to pull some people who are scared of missing their, their jury duty uh, deadline and, and maybe don't feel so well and come out to your, your jury assembly room and then sit there for hours and hours and sit through the voir dire process, which is where you the ju- do the jury selection where lawyers, you know, interview the, the jurors before they're assigned to a jury, and then Even if you had gotten that far and then you try to proceed with a jury trial. How many alternates do you bring in? And then when you, somebody starts calls in sick, and you say, "Well, jury alternate number one, uh, could you please take uh, seat number two where that person was just sitting?" Uh, yeah. Well, actually, I was reading. I don't think so. I was reading
1: just yesterday. One juror during the jury selection process a couple of days ago raises his hand. Uh, Your Honor, uh, could we uh, kind of spread around, out around uh, the right. courtroom? Yeah. And the judge said, "Yeah." So instead of them being stuffed like right. sardines yeah. in the jury box, right. twelve people. They were sitting all over like they were in a movie theater. You know, somebody's in the back row, somebody's in the front right. Love it. Uh,
0: So, you know,
1: maybe the
0: the lawyers felt like they were in a dinner theater. (laughs) That's the solution. But, I mean, a lot of counties have uh, taken—it's county by county. Um, You can go to the, you know, Los Angeles County Court website, and they've got their posting about— about uh, coronavirus. And, and then they're every... pushing trials by yes. a month mm-hmm. and some for all civil cases and some criminal trials. San Bernardino well. is moving, taking all civil trials off but leaving criminal trials on as a hedge because people do have a constitutional right to uh, a speedy trial. You might be sitting in custody in the county jail waiting for trial, and then suddenly the court system says, well, we just don't want to have your jury trial right now. I'm sorry, so we're going to kick that out. I mean, Criminal defense attorneys are 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 jumping up and down. They're screaming that their their clients are sitting in jail uh, for longer than they should have to. Not that they often should have to sit there at all, but but sometimes they do, and and that's a really terrible situation. So we have we're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. The criminal justice system can't just take a week off uh, or push things the way you know the bond movie just said. Well, we're just going to push the release by a year. Well, you can't do that if you've got criminal defendants sitting. In a jail somewhere.
1: Whatever Daniel Craig wants, Daniel Craig gets
0: because of his fingers.
1: Uh, so, uh, what about uh, folks on the job? Apart from the formal court procedures, uh, yeah. w- what are your legal rights on the job? And, and actually, uh, there are some pretty good uh, guideposts. Uh, for example, vacation. Um, uh, if you want to go overseas and go visit to France or something, uh, and the boss says, "Well, you can't do that." Well, the boss is not entitled to tell you that you can't travel. So that's that's something if you want to put your foot down and, and tick off the boss. I'd
0: like to travel to Italy, please. Yeah, or or
1: Iran, you know, that'll be yeah. double trouble. What about working remotely? In general, companies do not have uh, have to allow this? What if you say to the boss, "Look, I want to work remotely." And again,
0: these are California laws because employment law is state by state.
1: Right. Uh, although there's a federal angle. The Federal Americans with Disabilities Act says that if you have a disability mm-hmm. uh, such that you really need to work remotely under some circumstances, you may be entitled to do that. And I would think this would be one circumstance. Yeah, and, where and the more likely to the win. way
0: that plays out is you have uh, a disability of some kind. And then you go to your employer and you say, I want you to make reasonable accommodation, and they have to evaluate what reasonable means. And that's what a judge and a jury would do later if it went to a lawsuit, is they would decide what is a reasonable accommodation. And for somebody whose disability leads to them being, for example, immunosuppressed and thus in danger of catching this virus and it being very uh, uh, life-threatening, perhaps— it makes sense to me that working remote would be a reasonable accommodation. I mean, what if somebody has cystic fibrosis or, or a lung disorder or something of uh, another kind?
1: So here's here's a twist for you. What if you want to come in and the boss says, No, I'm ordering you to work remotely? You well, Want
0: to come in to, he, I don't it
1: doesn't process, I don't get well, it. Well, maybe somebody who is really focused on their job and they know there's free coffee, that's it. There's free coffee, they're not gonna get diddly done at home. Uh, yeah, and, what if
0: you're a salesman who works on commission, you know, and, yeah. and if you don't make sales, you don't eat. You're not salaried, or you are, but it's minimal. What, I mean, and you want to come in and sell Toyotas to somebody, uh, whoever might come in to buy a Toyota these days. It's not like that's a major gathering. There's probably still people trying to yeah. buy Toyotas, but what if your dealership says, "Nope, sorry, I don't come in? So the answer is
1: actually the boss uh, does have a right to insist that you don't come in. The only exception is if the boss is discriminating against you. For example, if he says, everybody over 70, stay home. You know, ah. I don't want a for our own protection. That's discriminating against a protected class. Wow. So- that's an interesting
0: wrinkle. I had not thought about it that way because, I mean, that's sort of a double... Uh, there's two layers of, of complication there. It's the, the the employee wants to come in, yeah. mm-hmm. and is getting discriminated on that basis. So let's keep playing with the hypotheticals here. What yeah. if the boss says, "You go
1: to the office. I insist. If you refuse, he can't retaliate against you by firing you. If the position you took is reasonable, namely, right. you know, the workplace assignment has some unsafe." Uh, Angles. Yeah. Usually, the boss is going to be smart enough to say, "Look, I'm providing gloves and equipment and sanitizer, and we're going to have everybody 15 feet from each other, and so on." Yeah. What about uh, what if the boss says, "Look, uh, that St. Louis business trip is really important. You've you've got to go on it." Does he have a right to force you to get on a plane? Yeah. And in general, the answer is yeah. The boss does have a right to insist that you do that. That's what the job is. That's the duties of the job. One solution, though, is you can build a case for how a virtual appearance is going to be just as good or almost as good. And I bet we're going to see that a lot. I mean, I've been really curious in recent years as to why the whole idea of uh, video conferencing Hasn't taken off, and people always say, "Well, there's nothing like a handshake. You got to look somebody in the it's- eye." Well, nobody's shaking hands now. Yeah. But the fact is, it, it, it hasn't really taken off. I still see a situation where
0: people go cross country, L.A. to New York, or back for, all the time for a
1: two or three hour meeting. And, and, it's- and this shows
0: up in the law all the time, where courts mandate personal appearances by certain invested important parties and they do it frequently to stick people's you know feet to the fire and say if you don't you know settle this lawsuit uh, and make it all go away before my mandatory settlement conference that i've set you for you're going to have to fly your decision maker maybe the insurance adjuster or an executive at a company who's your client Fly them out, and they have to be there in person with the ability to make a decision on the day of the mandatory settlement conference. And that can really put pressure on people. And that might be a good negotiating tech tactic and bring everybody to the table. But if it risks people's health or, I don't know, destroys the environment by right. forcing people to you know get on planes and fly all over the country for no good reason— that can have really bad consequences. They aren't I, worth I, I the, think, the outcomes the judge wants. I just think if we grounded Al Gore and so that he couldn't
1: take his private jet, the carbon footprint of the, great. Of the planet yeah, be would be, be so heavily improved. Say, um, when we come back, we're going to take one more pause, when we come back, we're going to let you know, may the boss force you to take your temperature. We're going to address that on Ooh. Too Many Lawyers. And again, please don't forget to rate us, review, and subscribe to Too Many
0: Lawyers, Apple, Revolver, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, I mean, you know, telling a friend about the podcast is pretty powerful, too. But those, those little, the digital ways of like, comment, subscribe type, you know, recommendations that you always get, hey, please go on Apple Podcasts and rate us, give us a rating and leave a, a, a comment or a review, that's really powerful stuff. And honestly, it's uh, easier than telling your friends, because who's got friends these days? I'm in (laughs) quarantine.
1: We'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. We are back. Uh, This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And everybody wants to know if the boss can force you to take your temperature in this time of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. I want to make it clear... Uh, if he insists on it being a rectal no, thermometer, no, mm-hmm. that's going to be a forget no go. About it's it. going to be a no go. That's, that's an easy no case. Go. Easy case. So let's just go with the more common What I, if I prefer? Never mind. Don't worry about it. So here's the answer the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, says that under the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, that is a medical exam. Yeah. And therefore, the boss does not have the right to order you to take a medical exam. But actually, it's kind of up in the air. Lawyers are scratching their heads over this. In a public health emergency, it's possible. Right. But it could. Like and plus, nowadays, of course, instead of the old deal where you stick the thermometer under your tongue for 10 they minutes. They just point and, a
0: laser at your forehead. Yeah. They get yeah. a
1: Captain Kirk device. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, plus they just apply some little swab thing on your forehead and boom, instantly they... Uh, somehow
0: they get a, a measurement of your temperature. So, my boss actually has been in an ongoing dispute with the uh, landlords of our office building about the air conditioning. Wow. So, he went out and got a, a temperature gun uh, at Home Depot that you point at things and it shows their temperature. And he's always, every once a week at least, I see him angrily wandering around the office and pointing it at different spots and showing this part of the office is 100 degrees. You wow. have to turn on the AC. You know, he could just turn that gun on me and I wouldn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> so, here, here's the next question: Uh, you're at work, um,
1: you get the coronavirus, I do. Yes, may you sue the boss mm. because you got the coronavirus? Answer is probably not. It would be pretty hard to prove
0: that you, yeah, that he'd had that he sent you into you know, unto the breach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, I mean, even if you're a medical professional, if you're given what you know, people what everyone knows is the appropriate, you know, personal protective equipment, PPE, uh, then, you know, your employer can only do so much to prevent it. You know, he's, things happen. It's an act of God. And my my boss sends me to court uh, to handle a case, and I get in a car accident on the way. It's not his fault. Yeah. Well, even something as obvious as, you know, does the boss have a
1: duty to warn you on the job if he knows of a sick employee— and the short answer is yes, but the thorny aspect of it, what about confidentiality? Is it yeah. a HIPAA violation? It sure sounds like it. If the boss comes in, oh, say, you know, Bert down in the third cubicle uh, has coronavirus, so you better uh, stay away from him. Uh, they're actually talking about sort of being cute and not without giving Bert's name. You know, that that northwest cubicle area, there might be a problem. You don't want to stay away from that. So yeah, what these, a mess. These, yeah, it really is. I mean, let's say you get it now. Yeah. Do you have a duty
0: to tell the boss that you have coronavirus? Probably. I think most people not. would say you do. Like their common knowledge, mm-hmm. their yeah, intuition right. would be I think I should, in a public health emergency, have to inform people around me. And the problem, though, is that we've come from a, a legal history that's been grappling with a lot of diseases that there's been actual hysteria around when they're not actually that easily transmissible but you know transferable but so many people were afraid of them the big and famous one of course is aids we came out of the 80s and into the 90s with aids panic people were running around with their hair on fire thinking that they were all going to get aids when it's actually hard to contract aids you can be in a relationship with somebody and if you're careful not contract aids I mean, much less be a coworker. And if you have to disclose to your boss that you are HIV positive, it's going to ruin your life. Maybe they're going to find a way to fire you or people are just going to make you miserable and discriminate against you. It's terrible. And that's a private diagnosis that most people don't need to know. Now, when circumstances change and somebody, you know, accidentally, uh, the the you know, slices your hand open with a paper cutter, suddenly your duty to, to tell people, by the way, back up. Uh, you know, there's blood everywhere and I'm HIV positive. That might change. But, right. you know, in regular, ordinary day to day life, we don't have to tell people that coronavirus or, you know, H1N1 swine flu or Ebola or whatever other uh, you know public health emergency crisis comes upon us. The rules might have to change, and that's a really tough thing because without bright line rules where we can say you don't have to disclose stuff or you do, period, that's it. That's the way it works. If it changes from disease to disease, that can really make things complicated. The law is slow to evolve. So let's move from the workplace to just kind of society in general and, and
1: fold in the whole issue of rights, First Amendment and so on. I mean, you're seeing uh, restrictions on on public meetings. Yep. Uh, Governor Newsom of California basically said, look, look, no more meetings. What about my right to assembly? You have 250 people in attendance. Yeah, right to assemble, yeah. uh, free speech and so on. Uh, some people, experts are saying you do not have a right to assemble against this backdrop right. of a known public health risk. But you know, it kind of reminds you of what happened after nine eleven. yeah, when we had you know the wiretapping and and at, at first, of course, everybody was on the same page. You know, we'd been attacked, three thousand Americans had been murdered. But then without before too long the ACLU stepped up and said, look you know there are limits to this and the ACLU is already stepping up now in the coronavirus deal I want to quote Jay Stanley he's a senior policy analyst at the ACLU he said just the other day the government does have sweeping powers to combat communicable disease but there are limits so you may see some pushback yeah I mean you know, it's gotten everybody's attention the NBA season that's it Major League yeah. baseball no games, March Madness and so on and you know Major lunch league soccer too, so to on. everything. Yeah, so the whole deal. So I think at this point of you know a few days after Donald Trump's
0: announcement uh, of the national emergency, you're not seeing a whole lot of pushback. pushback. Yeah. But I mean that's the the danger really isn't what happens today or next week. It's as we've discussed previously on this podcast specifically after 9/11, uh, the government started collecting more data. For anti-terrorist purposes. And then the government started sharing that with that information that was gathered with law enforcement. And in fact, the federal government was caught, uh, the FBI was caught teaching state law enforcement how to falsify the record of where they had gotten information to create a paper trail to show that they'd gotten information from a different way because the FBI didn't want to disclose that they'd been sharing information with local law enforcement. So they were training local law enforcement about how to uh, lie in criminal proceedings about the origin of evidence to not reveal that the FBI was spying on Americans. And that was a huge deal. And the fact that the FBI was spying on on Americans using the Patriot Act— it shows that you know what what happens in a pandemic or a, a political global you know, geopolitical crisis doesn't stay in a geopolitical crisis. This ain't Vegas, baby. No. It's going to last for years. The Patriot Act is still out there. PRISM is still out there. The government is still collecting and using your data and sharing it with law enforcement in a way that, in many judges' eyes, violates the Fourth Amendment because— you don't always have a watchdog like the ACLU saying, "Okay, well, hold on, let's not go so far." And we got to protect people's lives, but we also got to protect people's freedom and privacy and everything else.
1: So you mentioned uh, the AIDS uh, disease yeah. and. Um at the top of the episode, I was talking about how I used to uh, be uh, addicted to television. I'd spend yes. hour upon hour watching. One of the things that I saw on television, watching Howdy Doody, yeah, or a three-inch
0: yeah. screen or something. Yeah. I don't remember. And so
1: in the seventies, I remember I'd watch <laughs> six-inch screen. then. I'd, no. I'd see a commercial for a candy. It was a Diet Aid, mm. and uh, the candy would basically take a like a little caramel. You'd take mm-hmm. it an hour before a meal, and it would oh, cut your appetite. Cut yeah, your yeah, appetite, yeah. and uh, it was called AIDS. A-Y-D-S. Oh, that's bad. Um, I'm here to tell you the AIDS candy kind of went away. Brand, yeah. When AIDS yeah, got into yeah. the news. So now we that's fast tough. forward to coronavirus. Destroy the
0: goodwill in your business. You
1: think that was tough for the AIDS candy people, yeah. Connor? What about Corona beer? Absolutely. A study has shown 16% of Americans are just not sure whether the virus is in any way related to Corona beer. How would that make you feel if you were the uh, CEO of Corona or, or a 30-year employee? You know, it's yeah. a good job, you know, it pays your mortgage, it you puts your kids through college, That yeah. you work, you know, you're a distributor for Corona beer. 14% of respondents who regularly consume Corona beer that I will not buy it in public now. Yeah. I am not going to do it. Forty- 38% <laughs> yeah. of beer drinkers insisted they would not, under any circumstance, buy corona as
0: the deadly virus spreads yeah. across the globe. Is
1: this a suspension of common sense? It's a, it's,
0: it's a result of the way the question is asked, in part, and people probably wouldn't have even thought of it if, if the question asker hadn't brought it up in a survey in a way that implies, oh, you should know something and, and people don't want to look stupid in response to a survey, so they go, oh, I'm, there may there's a problem there must be a connection oh yeah yeah i wouldn't do it but fortunately we can all sleep soundly because corona beer is i believe a division of anheuser-busch anheuser-busch has money they'll be okay and they might lose the brand value of the name corona uh they're just gonna put in a different colored bottle well we'll see where uh, where the stock goes if, <laughs> i'm, I'm uh, sure it's not doing great but whose stock is actually we did have a big rebound of the stock market didn't we
1: we did on Friday. Did. It was pretty pretty marvelous. The Biggest jump, I think, since uh, 1987. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, there is other news uh, in the legal world apart from coronavirus stuff. And we promised to talk about uh, the president's tendency to fire off libel lawsuits. And the idea being he's really weaponizing the lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, he's obviously yeah. had a running feud with uh, the press. And uh, Donald Trump uh, has, uh, either personally or uh, his campaign, they fired off some libel suits in the last few weeks against CNN, against the Washington Post. And the defense by these folks is, uh, give me a break. These are opinions that we are expressing. They are opinions the president doesn't like you can't sue somebody for libel because they express an opinion, even if it's just over the top, even if it's not really based on on proper fact-checking. And, of course, they're not acknowledging they did anything wrong. But it's kind of a disturbing trend. If you're a Trumpster, you can say, well, it's very disturbing that there is evident overpowering bias by the vast majority of news outlets against the president. But if you're somebody who gets sued, uh, it's a really serious thing because it has a huge chilling effect. Even big companies with lots of money and lawyers and insurance, it can have an impact on them in terms of how vigorous they're going to be and how uh, how uh, hard they go after people in power that they think deserve to be exposed. So I think we're going to see a debate over whether or not the president is misusing this uh, libel suit as a
0: tool. Yeah, it's 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 clearly meant to affect the way that the president is covered over the next you know, ten months uh, or whatever. Uh, we're, oh gosh, it's not even ten months. It's like seven or eight months now uh, before the election really, you know, comes to a head. Uh, Jenna Ellis, who's a senior legal advisor to the Trump campaign, who's the mouthpiece at the moment for the Trump campaign, um, their position, uh, when asked, you know, the uh, response is demanded: "What about the chilling effect?" Was that false statements aren't protected by the Constitution, and therefore there's no chilling effect. That's the quote. That's nonsense. That's gibberish. There's no connection between those st- things. To say that that because false statements aren't protected, there's no chilling effect, is meaningless. You can still the false statements can be not protected, but people could still be chilled. Even if you sued somebody in a legitimate libel lawsuit, and they had really made false statements, it would still having to have a chilling effect on them. And that's really what we have to think about. It's not a, even about the merits of Trump's lawsuits, which are obviously meritless. It's that the fact that the president is going out there and wielding the power of the presidency and the amount of of, automatic press, he does anything, you know, he sneezes, and it's, well, nowadays, literally, if he sneezes, it's a public health emergency, it's it's on the news. The fact that the president can file a lawsuit and just change the national conversation to be about his claims that these newspapers are treating him badly, Washington Post, CNN, New York Times, and then these New York Times... Uh, has to The New York Times has to write an article about... I mean, it's newsworthy. They, they have they write articles. They've got a report on they the they got lawsuit. a report on the news. <laughs> They've got a report. We are being sued by the president. I mean, there's know no... what they g- say. Any publicity is good publicity. Yeah, exactly. right? I don't think the New York Times needs more name recognition. Yeah, of course, one of the problems now. the president faces is the
1: absence of malice rule that we all know about because of that wonderful Sally Field and Paul Newman movie, Absence of Malice. If you're a public figure mm-hmm. and you sue for libel you have a higher burden than a non-public figure. So, right. If you're uh, somebody who isn't famous and you say, oh my goodness, uh, uh, Joe lied about me and he injured me, you sue. And if it was a false, then you can win, Boom, regardless darn. of whether Joe knew yeah. it was really false. But if you are a public figure, you have to prove malice on the part of the defendant, the, the speaker who said the, the bad, negative, uh, false things. And malice means they knew they were lying and wanted to hurt you, or were so reckless about whether or not it was true that they obviously just didn't care and didn't check. So that's
0: that's an extra hurdle. Poor, but, poor, rich, famous celebrities. They have such a difficult life that's driving right. their libel suits. That's
1: right. Paul Newman and Donald Trump. I'm,
0: I'm sure Paul Newman would love
1: to be associated with the president. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground, Connor. Uh, hopefully uh, folks have found... Uh, Uh, stuff interesting about the the legal angles of coronavirus. Uh, We shall see you all next time on Too Many Lawyers. Thanks for
0: listening. Wash your hands. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican.
1: And I'm Phil Bradison, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our
0: country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks.